This is God's Word from Luke 17 and verses 11 to 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers, who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way, your faith has made you well. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may your word be now and always our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your glory our supreme concern. Well, do please turn back to Luke chapter 17 and verse 11. In the third volume of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the hero, Arthur Dent, is introduced to an SEP field. An SEP field is a sci-fi invention that makes things invisible. In this case, it's a starship hiding in the middle of a cricket match at Lourdes. And Arthur's companion, Ford Prefect, explains an SEP field, an SEP is something we can't see or don't see or our brain doesn't let us see, because we think that it is somebody else's problem, SEP. So the brain just edits it out. It relies on people's natural predisposition not to see anything they don't want to, weren't expecting, or can't explain. I guess we've all had that experience of looking for something and not seeing it, despite the fact that it's right there in front of your eyes. You're looking for your wallet or your car keys or your phone, and you know where you left them. But you look, and it's as if they're invisible. You search everywhere, but you just don't see them. And then you feel a right wally when someone else picks them up from where you said they were and says they were right there in front of you all along. Seeing, but not seeing. This section in Luke's Gospel is introduced by one of Luke's journey markers, verse 11, on the way. And it's a section, a section which focuses on when Jesus' kingdom will come, when it will be clearly seen and revealed to all. So if you look on to verse 30, the Son of Man will be revealed. Or uh, all the way on to 1911, the kingdom of God will appear. But in the meantime, whilst it is still hidden and veiled and invisible, the kingdom at its king can still be seen, that is perceived for those with eyes to see it. Do you remember the story of Winnie the Pooh and Piglet following a set of footsteps in the snow? Hello, said Piglet. What are you doing? Hunting, said Pooh. Hunting what? Tracking something, said Winnie the Pooh very mysteriously. Tracking what? I shall have to wait until I catch up with it. Oh, Pooh, do you think it's a woozle? And after a minute or two, Pooh stops because the tracks have become too 
this whatever it is has been joined by another whatever it is. And as they keep on following the tracks, well, the three become four, uh, four sets of prints. They see the tracks, but what they don't see is it, it's actually their own footprints in the snow as they, uh, they're following, as they go round and round the spinny. They see, but they don't see. Luke tells us about 10 lepers who are cleansed and healed and restored by Jesus. But only one of them sees. All 10 are physically healed, but only one of them saw, that is perceived, the significance of that healing and so returned to Jesus and was spiritually cleansed and healed and saved as well as a result. Later, the end of chapter 18, we're going to meet a man on the road to Jericho who cannot see, and yet he does see. He sees that Jesus is the Messianic son of David, and that perception brings him not just physical sight, but into discipleship. Or at the beginning of chapter 19, Zacchaeus is desperate to see who Jesus was. And what he saw meant that salvation came to his house. You see, there is seeing, and then there's seeing. So let's look at this account more closely. First, notice the way that Luke uses the idea of distance. Notice the way Luke uses the idea of distance. Verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. Not just that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Luke specifies he was travelling along the border uh, between Samaria and Galilee. That is, between regions whose people were suspicious and antagonistic towards each other. And so we get a hint of separation, distance and alienation. And that's then underlined as we meet these ten lepers. We're told they stood at a distance and had to shout to make their voices carry across the intervening space. Now, we're used to the idea of being excluded from things because it's part of everyday life. Think of the last time you were queuing for the nightclub and the bouncer took one look at you. Maybe you were wearing the wrong shoes or the wrong jeans or maybe they just didn't like the look of you. And they said, no, you can't come in. Or if you can't remember the last time you were queuing for a nightclub, well, think of the National Trust property you visited and the ticket booth at the gate. Have you got a ticket? No. Well, then you can't come in. Or think of the classmate who's disruptive and disrespectful, uh, disrespectful to your teachers, disobedient to the school rules. Well, eventually, after detentions and isolation and so on, they're going to be excluded, aren't they? Not allowed into school, banished from the premises, maybe for a few days, maybe permanently. Well, leprosy in the Bible refers not just to what we know now as Hansen's disease. It was a catch-all term for a variety of skin diseases, some curable, others not. It was dreadful and dreaded, and in its worst form, it was disfiguring and ultimately deadly. And the ancient world's only defence against it was quarantine, distance. So contracting leprosy meant immediate social distancing, isolation, exclusion from society as a protective measure. The leper had to leave home and family, spouse and children, work and pleasures. The only isolation ward available was removable, removal, distance from the community. 
they were ostracized and banished. Their suffering wasn't just the physical symptoms of the disease, it was the exclusion, the distance that came with it too. In fact, we could say that leprosy was a living death, indeed a living hell. Exactly the right kind of word for it, because hell is to be shut out from the presence of the living God, excluded, distanced. The Old Testament law underlined God's purity and holiness by banning anything defiled or decaying from the temple, from God's presence. Sacrifices had to be without blemish. Leprosy therefore made you unfit for the presence of God. You weren't allowed in the town and you certainly weren't allowed in the temple. So not only did leprosy ruin things inwardly, your health, and horizontally, ostracizing you from others, but also vertically, cutting you off from God. And in that sense, leprosy is a metaphor, a visual aid for what sin does to people. Sin disfigures. Perhaps you know someone who's very gifted, but like all of us, they're flawed. And so their character's out of shape, disfigured, and there's an ugly streak in them. Sin disfigures. Sin distances. Those flaws are part of what causes the arguments, the divorces, the resentments, the enmities between people. Sin distances and, most seriously, sin denies you access to God, as in his purity and holiness he cannot even look on sin. So this band of lepers is a living picture, a distillation of all that is messed up and decaying and diseased in a fallen world, a world under judgment and reaping the consequences in terms of distance. This is not how it should be. So then, second, notice the mercy of Jesus. The mercy of Jesus. Look at verse 13. They lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And as he does so, what does that mercy look like? Well, verse 14, as they went, they were cleansed. Verse 15, the Samaritan saw that he'd been healed. And verse 19, he was made well. Or more literally, if you look at the uh, ESV footnote number 8, he was saved. It's exactly the same thing that Jesus said to the woman at Simon the Pharisee's house. Your faith has saved you, 7.50. Or to the woman on the way to Jairus' house. Daughter, your faith has made you well, saved you, 8.48. So much so that for this uh, Samaritan, all distance and alienation is removed. As the Samaritan returned to give thanks, he's no longer had to stand at a distance. Instead, verse 16, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet. And more than that, he's a Samaritan, isn't he? And Jesus is a Jew. But the national and religious barriers of that difference and distance has been obliterated too. Now, the only people who could legally declare a leper clean and healthy were the priests. Hence Jesus' instruction, verse 14, go and show yourselves to the priests. But whilst a priest could declare a leper clean, he could not make them clean. So Jesus is doing what no one else could do. You see, what happens normally when something clean comes into contact with something unclean, well, the unclean becomes dirty, doesn't it? A kitchen floor, clean kitchen floor, won't make the wellies clean. It's the other way around. The muddy wellies will make the kitchen floor dirty. Or think of the norovirus outbreaks or strep A in school. Contamination is spread by contact. The uninfected are infected. 
And the same is true in the religious arena, not just in Judaism, but actually every religion. If you have two people, one clean, one unclean, the danger is ending up with both unclean. And yet, Jesus is not contaminated or infected. He doesn't become unclean. Rather, his cleanness is infectious. Jesus reverses the norm. He makes the unclean clean. Here is a remarkable and astonishing power to release this man from all that pollutes and contaminates and distances him. And he is now free, released from his captivity, free to go home, free to associate freely and free to go to the temple. It's a wonderful picture of why Jesus is such great good news. He's able to clean up all that defiles us. He's able to heal all that makes our souls sick. He's able to save us and make us spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally well and whole. That's what Jesus does for sinners, for fallen, flawed, messed up stuff-ups like you and me. So let me ask you, do you know that mercy of Jesus in your life? Do you know that mercy of Jesus in your life? That's why the Samaritan turned back. He had experienced that mercy personally, powerfully, for himself in his own life. And he turns back to thank the person through whom that mercy had been powerfully expressed. And in doing so, well, he discovers not just physical healing, but salvation, cleansing and healing and rescue and reconciliation because of who he turns to. And I think that's Luke's point. Because thirdly, notice Jesus' question. Notice Jesus' question. Verse 17. Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Where are the nine? Luke doesn't tell us. Perhaps they did it. They'd been instructed. They went to the priests. I guess well, they must have been pretty grateful. Their lives had been restored and transformed. But notice that is not enough for Jesus. The mercy and power of God had been manifested to them through him. And he expected them to respond right by returning to him to praise God. Think about the implications of that. The kingdom had come upon them in the person of Jesus. So this miraculous sign of their physical healing was intended to point them to him for so, such, so, so much more than just simply a cure for their leprosy. Now one unlikely candidate, the, the Samaritan, saw that. He perceived the significance of his healing. He realised it was a sign pointing him back to Jesus to return and allow him to put his faith in him. But the other nine didn't see it. Only, they only saw their physical healing and they walked away, the distance between them and Jesus increasing with every step. Now, often this encounter is taken as an encouragement to gratitude. Are we grateful for what God has done for us in Jesus and in our lives? And we certainly should be. But that is to reduce this miracle to merely a moral lesson and to miss its message. It is to see, but not see. You see, the point is not about the need for gratitude, but rather about the person to whom such gratitude is due. All God's gifts 
are meant to lead us to the person who is in his is his supreme gift to humanity that's the point it's all about jesus do you remember those 3d puzzles which were all the rage a few years ago they looked like ordinary patterned pieces of paper but if you squinted at them and looked at them in a certain way uh, sort of you could see a 3d image of a dolphin or a dinosaur albeit rather strangely patterned. Well, if you found those pictures only frustrating and merely expensive wrapping paper, well, then the secret's out, isn't it? What you missed was only a parsley dolphin or a tartan dinosaur. But to look at this miraculous cure and not to see what it says about Jesus, well, that is to miss everything. If you only see the healing, and you don't return in order to put your trust in the one who did that, well, then you miss everything. The sign was not difficult to see, was it? It was miraculous. And it's not difficult to see either, to grasp, to perceive, to really see its significance, that this is the Saviour, that Jesus is God's saving King. The question is, whether you will construct an SEP field around that so that you won't see, or whether you will return and put your trust, your reliance, your dependence, your faith in him to save you, however unlikely you may think you are. He is there as your saviour. Do you see that? Thank you for listening. God bless.